With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 120, Reverend Mother. Today, we resume our historical narrative and check in with the elderly Queen T, mother of Akhenaten, wife of the late Amunhotep III, great queen of Egypt. T remained alive throughout the first decade of Akhenaten's reign, so let's uncover what she has been up to. This episode is brought to you by Gergana, Christopher, and Laurent, in gratitude for their donations to the show. Your support is generous, folks. May the priests of Aten offer the finest cuts of meat and the freshest vegetables in thanks for your kindness. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me. On with the show. The year was 1351 BCE, approximately. It was regnal year 12 under the majesty of Neferkeperure Wa Enre. Akhenaten, pharaoh of Egypt, remained ensconced in his holy city of Akhet Aten, what we now call Amana. When we visited him last time, Akhenaten was enjoying the splendors of great palaces and mighty temples enormous institutions that had grown at the centre of his new home. The king will remain there throughout this episode, doing whatever it is that Akhenaten does. Meanwhile, you and I will take a visit to the king's mother. Queen T, mother of the pharaoh, has been absent from our story for some time. In the first few years of Akhenaten's reign, when he was still Amunhotep IV, T had acted as a public guide and counterpart to the young ruler. Before he took his own wife, Nefertiti, the Queen Mother T filled the public role of Great Wife of the King, a title she had wielded for nearly four decades. As far as we can guess, it was T who assisted young Amunhotep IV in his early days on the throne. But what has she been up to since then? After regnal year two, when Nefertiti appears, Queen T seems to step into the background of royal life. We don't see her in any formal capacity or artwork for almost ten years. What was she up to? Where was she living? I'll cover those later in the episode. For now, I want to focus on a curious event that shows up recorded in the tombs at Amana. You see, after a decade in obscurity, Queen T re-emerged around year 12 of Akhenaten. It seems that she came to the city of Amana to pay her son a visit. In a number of records from the city, we get a glimpse of the occasion when Great T, Matriarch Supreme, came to the horizon of Aten and spent time with her family. 
By 1351, Queen T was perhaps 60 years of age or so. She had wielded power on and off for nearly five decades, first as a great wife of the reigning king, now as the dowager, the queen mother. We can imagine her as an elderly woman with skin of dark brown. She probably travelled by carrying chair, with porters holding her aloft for all to see. Based on her mummy, the queen's hair was thick, a lustrous wave that fell back from the top of her head to beneath her shoulders. She may have been balding or shaving her head. Either way, the great queen had a strong, commanding appearance. To her family, she must have seemed the very image of feminine power. T came to Amana in Regnal Year 12, and her visit was recorded in the tomb of a man who served her directly. The tomb of Hoya, who acted as T's steward, contains several artistic scenes relating to the Queen Mother. We see her visiting the city's temples, accompanied by her son, and enjoying a banquet with the royal family. From these images, and the hieroglyphs which accompany them, we can get a sense of the occasion when T, the revered mother of Pharaoh, came to Arket Aten. The most prominent scene involving T shows her at Amana coming to visit one of its temples. We see her in a building called the Maru, commonly translated as sunshade, but perhaps more accurately, viewing place. There were a few of these Maru around Amana, dedicated to different women of the royal family. I'll talk about the monuments themselves in more detail in another episode. For now, let's focus on T. In the artistic scene, Akhenaten leads his mother by the hand to the centre of the Maru. The viewing place is depicted generically as a wide, open temple to the Aten. In fact, the artist composing the scene has actually copied the design from the larger state temples, the House of Aten and Mansion of Aten in the central city. We know from archaeology that the Maru temples looked quite different, but this is art, not life. When it came to depicting a sacred space, the Egyptian artist just copied what he already knew. So, Akhenaten and T walk into the centre of a wide, open-air building. Above, the Aten shines down on the splendid couple. The caption to this scene is short and to the point. It says, quote, Leading the king's wife and king's mother, T, in order to cause her to see the sunshade, or Maru. End quote. Above the royal couple, the Aten shines with its hieroglyphic names in cartouches, which say, quote, Great living Aten, Lord of Jubilees, Lord of everything that Aten encircles, Lord of heaven, Lord of earth, in Aket Aten. End quote. Queen T came to Amana and at some point visited the Maru viewing place, which had been constructed on her behalf. Notably, the queen brought with her a girl named Baket Aten, who is most likely a child of the deceased Amunhotep III. It seems that T bore her husband another daughter, either just before or not long after he died. Baket Aten doesn't play a major role in the story, but it's nice to note her existence. This final child of Amunhotep III remained with her mother T and came to Amana on the occasion of the visit. In fact, the scene of T visiting the Maru also features Baket Aten, who follows the royal couple and carries three offerings, one for T, one for Akhenaten, and one for herself. These they will give to the Aten high above. In other words, 
Acting as the sort of flower girl, Baket Aten follows her mother and elder brother into the Maru, and thus into history. It's a cute addition. I like it a lot. Tea's visit wasn't just formal tourism. We also see the Queen Mother sitting down to a banquet with her son and his family. Another scene in the tomb of Huya shows the pharaoh and his mother seated at opposite sides of a table. To the left, Akhenaten sits with Nefertiti and the royal couple's eldest daughters, Merit Aten and Meket Aten. To the right, Queen T sits beside her own daughter, Baket Aten. Between the two groups, tables groan with huge piles of food, including bread, vegetables and meat. Bouquets of flowers sit atop the meals, presumably adding a floral scent to the proceedings. Akhenaten, Nefertiti and T all appear relaxed. The king and queen wear simple headdresses, called cut or bag headdresses, and they hold roasted meat up to their mouths. Akhenaten seems to be eating red meat off the bone, while Nefertiti bites into a roasted quail or duck. Their bellies, full of food, stick out prominently, an image of wealth and abundance in the royal palace. Tea, meanwhile, appears a little bit more formal, although still in a recreational pose. She relaxes in her chair, wearing a robe of linen. Atop her head, she has a tall crown in the shape of cow horns with a sun disk nestled between. These are symbols of the goddess Hathor, the supreme goddess of motherhood. As we will see later, such divine accessories are extremely common when it comes to Queen T. All three members of the royal family, Akhenaten, Nefertiti, and T, wear variations on the same costume. They are clad in high-quality linen that drapes over their bodies and does very little to hide the forms beneath. If anything, the linen accentuates the physical shape. Akhenaten is topless, wearing only a kilt. T and Nefertiti wear a sort of dressing gown style of robe. It's open at the front, exposing their bellies, thighs and breasts, but short sleeves cover their arms. The robes are cinched beneath the breasts so that the linen flows outwards down their sides. Curiously, it seems like the elder, T, is a lot more exposed than her daughter-in-law. Her dress hangs off her body, barely covering anything, and it seems as though T is sitting there essentially naked. Now, this could be interpreted a couple of ways. Obviously, the queen might have enjoyed dressing like that, or the exaggerated hint of sexuality might connect with the crown that she is wearing. Since T is wearing the regalia that is strongly tied to Hathor, it's possible that the Queen Mother is shown in a pose of exaggerated sensuality to convey her Hathor-like qualities. Hathor is intimately tied up with notions of female sexuality, femininity, motherhood, and so forth. So, T's dress might make sense if it's intended to evoke Hathor. We've seen in previous episodes how Akhenaten liked to play with divine imagery for his royal family. He depicted himself as a form of the god Shu, and Nefertiti as Tefnut. In that sense, T acts as Hathor, the wife of Re or Aten, while Akhenaten and his wife are the second generation of divinities. If that is accurate, and it's just interpretive, then the banqueting scene is both a pleasant image of domestic life, and also a symbolic tableau, a supper between beings who are living gods on earth. 
Then again, maybe T had just reached an age where she didn't really give a damn what people thought. If she was feeling hot, she'd open her robe, and to hell with anyone who didn't like it. Joking. Sometimes older people make jokes. My Nana takes her wig off when she's drunk. Your Nana and I have that in common. The artistic scenes which depict T at Amana show up in the tomb of a man named Hoya. Hoya seems to have been the queen's chief servant, her steward. He was responsible for her comfort and well-being in the city, and he shows up in almost every piece of art, attending to the queen mother and her needs. When T visited the Maru viewing place, Hoya led the procession, opening the doors of the temple for the pharaoh and his mother to enter. When the family sat down to eat, Hoya attended to T's need, and we see a tiny figure of the steward standing near to her throne. He bows deeply, facing the pharaoh, and holds out his hands so that another servant can give Hoya a fresh roasted bird. The royal steward, one tiny figure amid the enormous royal beings, profits in a small way from his service to the queen mother. Finally, one of the doors in Hoya's tomb bears an inscription, in which the steward pays homage to the great queen whom he served. In tall columns of hieroglyphics, Hoya offers praises to T and wishes for his eternal health. The steward says, quote, Adoration to your Ka, O lady of the two lands, who illuminates the two lands with her beauty. King's mother, king's chief wife, T, the possessor of abundant food. May they be decreed for my Ka, as for what endows me with a good life, in union with joy, as one who seeks all that is given. For the Ka of the overseer of the royal quarters, the treasurer and steward in the house of the king's mother, the king's great wife, T, Hoya, justified. End quote. Hoya's prayer to T offers adoration and praise to the great lady, but there is an obvious reciprocal relationship communicated as well. He gives praise to T in order that she will give him good things, and in order that she, eventually, will bless him with a good life and perhaps a place in eternity. We might be tempted to think of these officials and servants as just nameless beings attending to the needs of the royal family, but there are relationships going on here as well, connections between the ruler and the person who attends them, and the servant, in this case Hoya, expects that they will receive something in return. These kind of reciprocal relationships go to the very heart of power in ancient Egypt. As we will see in future episodes, the relationship between the ruler and the ruled is a lot more complicated than it is commonly described. So, Queen T visited Amana early in the second decade of Akhenaten's reign. She viewed the great works he had commissioned, including a special type of temple made just for her. She dined with the royal family, enjoying the abundance of Akhenaten's palaces and the great wealth of his kingdom. And, for her duration, she enjoyed the attentions of a palace servant, the royal steward Hoya, who attended to her needs. Presumably, it was a relatively comfortable visit, all things considered. It's not clear whether T came to Amana for a short, temporary visit, or if she decided to remain at the city from now on. Having arrived around year 12, her visit is well attested, but other objects from the city do suggest that perhaps she remained, spending her last years in the company of her son, rather than return to other palaces. 
A couple of objects testify to this, like a book label, a small piece of faience about six centimetres high, which could be attached to a scroll with a string or leather tie. This label, in light blue, features the cartouches of T and her late husband, Amunhotep III, along with some of their epithets. The label also gives the name of the book to which it was attached. This was called, quote, the Book of the Sycamore Tree and the Moringa Tree, or Medjat Nehet Bak. The meaning of this name is unclear. It could refer to a literary text, like a poem, or perhaps a botanical treatise about these kinds of plants. Unfortunately, the papyrus which this label was attached to is lost, so we can't know for sure, but it's a curious item which would be lovely to know more. Another object that shows up at Amana and references tea is a small stela. This one is interesting because it shows T sitting beneath the rays of the Aten right next to a figure of her husband. Amunhotep III, the deceased king of Egypt, sits beside the queen mother, relaxing in his chair in a very Amana-esque pose. Above the couple, Aten shines brightly, extending its rays down to the royals below. This stela is a little bit unusual historically. It shows up at Amana and is designed in an obviously Amana style, but it depicts Amunhotep III rather than Akhenaten, and this has led some scholars to assume that the stela depicted Amunhotep as a living being at the city. From that, they deduced that Amunhotep must have reigned alongside his son, coming to live at Amana in a later time. Well, that co-regency theory no longer holds much sway among Egyptologists. For one thing, a stela depicting Amunhotep III could just as easily be a memorial of the king, rather than a snapshot of contemporary events. For my own money, it's most likely an object of devotion to Amunhotep, one made to remember the great pharaoh. Still, it's curious, and it is a nice image of T beside her husband with all the nostalgia that accompanies it. So in regnal year 12 of Akhenaten, the great Queen Mother T visited the city of Amana. Perhaps she wound up staying, choosing to live at the new city for the remainder of her days. We will see her again in an upcoming episode, as she bears witness to another event of the king's reign. For now, it's time to take a quick break. In chapter 2, we're going to jump back in time slightly. We've seen T in year 12, but what was she doing before this? T has been absent from our story for about 10 years. What was she up to in that time? When we come back, we'll explore the records of T's later life, the gap between her son's appearance on the throne and her re-emergence into public life. Join me in a moment for Chapter 2, where we explore the lost years of Queen T's retirement. See you in a moment. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. <laughs> Thank you. 
Chapter 2 Queen T's life was a curious one. From an early age, she had experienced a world dominated by pomp, ceremony, wealth, and imperial power. Over 38 years, T had shared the majesties of Neb Ma'at Re, Amunhotep III, surely the greatest pharaoh that Egypt had yet seen. She had risen in status, her image becoming nearly the equal of her husband. In art and statuary, she is the same size as Amunhotep, a rare privilege when most kings were shown far larger than anyone else. For nearly four decades, the king's great wife had been the supreme image of womanhood, a wife, a mother, and a goddess, a lady to surpass all others. Ten years after the death of her husband, things had changed. T had moved from the spotlight to the background, becoming a secondary figure in political life. As her son matured, established himself in power, and pursued his religious ideas, it seems like T had stepped further and further away from the centre of power. At least, that's what the fragmentary artistic record says. During the first couple years of his reign, T had stood beside her son in the same way she had done with her late husband. But as the years passed, those artistic images began to decrease. T became secondary, appearing less and less often. By 1351, only a few artifacts survive to reveal aspects of her life. From these objects, perhaps we can tease out some features of Queen T's retirement. To begin with, let's look at T's public image. After her son took power and married his own queen, Nefertiti, T had stepped back from the limelight. Nevertheless, we can identify some features of her public identity. Thanks to surviving objects, we know T's names and titles during this retirement phase of her life. Apparently, the Queen Mother was known as follows. Quote, Hereditary Princess, Great of Praise, Lady of the Two Lands, Gracious of Heart, Sweetly Lovable, Mistress of the South and North, Rich in Splendor, Holy of Adornments, the great king's wife, T, may she live. That one comes from the base of a statue. Another inscription presents T as, quote, Hereditary princess, great of praise, lady of joy, mistress of breath, the joyful one, lady of the two lands, T, true of voice, along with the great god, the lord of eternity. The great king's wife, his beloved, the lady of the two lands, T, May she live forever and ever. End quote. Later in her life, Queen T represented herself as an august, divinely inspired figure. Titles like Hereditary Princess and Great of Praise are fairly standard for 18th Dynasty royal women. But other titles like Lady of Joy, Gracious of Heart, and Mistress of Breath are more important. These names have a symbolic association with the goddess Hathor. Hathor, Mother Supreme, is an important figure for T. As we'll see, the Queen Mother played with Hathor's imagery and symbolism a lot, both in her late husband's reign and also in the days of her son. It's not clear where T lived after her husband died. She may have remained at the fabulous palace we call Malkata, or she may have lived in a place called Gurob. Gurob, the modern name, is located in the fertile region just south of Cairo called the Fayum. Here, amid waterways, farmland, trees, and marshes, a small palace may have housed the secluded quarters of the king's wives and families. 
This palace has divulged several artifacts over the years, and quite a few of them relate to tea. Among the various relics from Gurob are a set of mascara tubes, or coal tubes, referring to the charcoal mixture which the Egyptians used for eye paint. These mascara kits belong to Queen Tea, and also to some of her daughters, like Sit Amun. The inscriptions on the tubes speak of the ladies' titles, and give us a hint of their personalities. The coal tubes are made of faience, a type of artificial stone that was abundant in 18th dynasty Egypt. Faience makers worked on an industrial scale at places like Malkata, Anamana, and later on, Gurob itself. The faience artisans made a variety of objects in different colours, the best of which could be rare and prestigious items. The mascara tubes of T and her daughters are at the top end of the spectrum, royal tier objects surviving the millennia. The coal tubes take the shape of, well, tubes. They are small, between 12 and 17 centimetres tall, and they hold a mixture of coal in the hollow part of the tube. A wooden applicator could rest inside the tube as well, and the objects are decorated in bright colours, with hieroglyphics standing out on the sides. From these tubes, and some other faience objects, we can get a sense that T might have had a favourite colour combination. Whenever objects show up with the names of Amunhotep III and T together, they almost exclusively combine a base colour of yellow with a sort of purple-blue for the lettering. Nice and bold. But whenever T's name is alone, it can alternate between yellow and blue, or white with blue. This suggests, tentatively, that T may have been fond of these particular combinations. If that's true, it's one of the few instances that we could get a sense of a royal figure's personal tastes. Another interesting aspect of these coal tubes is their design. Interestingly, the mascara kits are universally made to look like reed flutes. It seems that this is intentional. Making them look like musical instruments, the artisans might have been capturing an idea where beauty and music intersect. Music and beauty are two attributes of the goddess Hathor, supreme mother figure and embodiment of femininity. So, the mascara kits of T and her daughters, which are designed to look like flutes, are a double whammy of Hathoric imagery, eyeliner and good tunes. The celestial cow would be proud. One of the nicer objects relating to tea is a small stealer discovered at Gurob. It is a funerary stealer, dedicated to the great god Osiris, in his form of Wenefer, meaning he who is in everlastingly good condition. The stealer honours Osiris on behalf of the deceased Amunhotep III, and it may have been dedicated by tea herself. The stealer says, quote, an offering which the king gives to Osiris Wenefer, the great god, lord of the sacred land, so that he may give offerings of wind, milk, everything good and pure, and true libation for the Ka of the Osiris, king Neb Ma'at Re, the son of Re, Amunhotep III, ruler of Thebes, true of voice. The great wife of the king, his beloved lady of the two lands, T, makes her monument for her beloved brother. End quote. Another object from Gurob, an offering table, says basically the same thing. It begs Osiris to look after the car of Amunhotep III, Neb Ma'at Re, 
on behalf of Queen T, who has, quote, made her monument for her beloved brother. Items like these suggest quite strongly that there was a cult or shrine to Amunhotep III in the area of Gurob, which might indicate that the Queen Mother lived there, giving prayers to the soul of her late husband. Or it might indicate the presence of a general royal cult honouring deceased pharaohs. It's hard to say until more archaeological work is done. At the very least, objects like these give a glimpse of T's later life and the monuments she left behind. There is one more object, though, that cannot be overlooked. It is a piece of outstanding quality, artistic beauty, and symbolic importance. As we round out this episode, I would be remiss if I did not stop to talk about Queen T's head. Of all the artifacts left behind from T's later life, one in particular stands out. It is the head of a statue, a wooden sculpture that depicts an elderly royal woman. The head does not have a label, so we can't be certain that it's T. But popular conception and scholarly tradition identifies the head as the Queen Mother. If that's true, it provides the last portrait of this influential, revered woman. But just to be safe, let's run through why the head is most likely to represent T. First up, the Gurob head presents an elderly woman. She is clearly royal, for the statue wears golden earrings in the shape of uraeus serpents. There are two uraei, or cobras, per earring, and sockets on the forehead point to where two more cobras would have rested once upon a time. Those cobras are gone now, probably stolen and melted down millennia ago, but the sockets remain, along with the two tails which run up the forehead and disappear under a covering. This feature, two cobras on the forehead, is distinctive to the late 18th dynasty, and the royal women of Amana in particular. On that, and all the other criteria, the most likely candidate for the statue is Queen T, and we probably won't get in much trouble if we assign it to her definitively. Of course, that could always change with new information, but for now, let's just go with it. The head comes in two parts, the face and neck, and the veil or headdress. The face is carved from yew, originally grown on cypress. The top is carved from acacia, classic Egyptian wood. The head shows a woman, past her youth, with lines at the edge of her mouth and on the cheeks. The face is triangular, leading to a slightly pointed chin. Her eyes are narrow, almond-shaped, much like the portraits of her late husband. Wonderfully, the eyes themselves actually survive. They are a combination of white alabaster for the corneas, and black glass, maybe obsidian for the iris. These eyes give the statue a piercing gaze, hinting at a formidable personality. Interestingly, the eyes are ever so slightly lopsided, which may be either artistic accident or a reflection of the queen's actual visage. T's face in this statue has an overall impression of negativity. Her eyebrows arch, black and tapered, and the sockets of the eyes seem to be slightly sunken, as if the skin is contracting with time. From here, the curved brows seem to lean down in a frown, and her mouth adds to an impression of sternness. The corners of T's mouth are heavily downturned, as if she is thinking long and hard about something terrible you have done. Put together, 
the face is that of a stern, perhaps severe woman. At least, that's when you look at it from the front. Face to face, the head of T seems almost hard, a character you wouldn't want to face with a guilty conscience. Turn it to the side, though, and things change. In profile, we get an entirely different impression. From the side, T's face is more impassive, and her downturned mouth hints at melancholy more than anger. The eyes, which seemed to be frowning, now appear to gaze into the distance, as if she is lost in thought. From this perspective, T does not seem angry, but pensive. Perhaps we should imagine her staring into eternity, contemplating the divine. And such divine thoughts would be appropriate, for this statue seems practically dipped in concepts of godhood. Once upon a time, T's statue wore a simple royal headdress, carved from acacia wood and attached to the main component. A layer of silver covered that headdress, and it was attached to the wood with nails of gold, a rather expensive way to unify them, but hey, this is a queen. The headdress itself was shaped like a bag, called the cut, which T wears occasionally in artistic scenes. We saw it, for instance, at the said festival of Amunhotep III, when T accompanied the king, wearing this particular headdress. The cut is an interesting design, which may have some kind of symbolism behind it, and for a long time, this headdress was the only surviving adornment of the statue, which made it hard to interpret artistically. Fortunately, that all changed rather recently. Many decades after its discovery, researchers working in the Berlin Museum archives found a missing piece to this statue. With conservation and careful restoration, they were able to put the two sections back together. What did their work reveal? Well, it seems that this statue is supposed to depict T in her guise as Hathor. What the archivists located was a crown in the shape of two cow horns joined by a solar disc. This is the traditional crown of the goddess Hathor, mother supreme and an important deity for T's public image. The horns have subsequently been reattached to the statue head. So, with the crown and sun disc restored, the queen now reclaims her image as a goddess on earth, the matriarch of her family, the lady of the two lands. So, the wooden statue head, the eyeliner tubes, and the stela to Osiris, all found at Gurob, have a common thread running through them. Whether it's the cow horns of the statue, or the flute shape of the mascara kits, or the religious texts devoted to T's late husband, the unifying theme of all these objects is that they share elements of religious symbolism and iconography. Depicting herself as a goddess and commissioning objects that associated herself and her husband with the great deities, Queen T played with the ideas of gods. All of that culminates in one last object, which takes the idea of mother goddess and runs with it, straight towards the horizon. Another object relating to T, which has religious overtones, is a small statue about 15 centimetres tall. It's made of wood, and it depicts a woman who has a human head, large pendulous breasts, a swollen or pregnant belly, and the body features of a hippopotamus. This is the great goddess Taweret, whose name literally means the great. Taweret is yet another goddess associated with maternity, and connected to Hathor. Taweret wears a long headdress coming down over the front shoulders and, at the back, 
a long braid reaching to her buttocks. In some texts, Tawerit is associated directly with the celestial cow, all of which combines to make this goddess seem like another of these maternal protector deities, a perfect fit for the Queen Mother, Our Lady T. The statue of Tawerit bears the face of Queen T, associating her directly with the god. It's not hard to see why T chose Tawerit for a statue. The goddess herself was quite popular, and even at Amana, archaeological remains testify to the popularity of Tawerit. The goddess shows up frequently in the remains of the city, which is curious considering Akhenaten's very public focus on one god and general disinterest in most of the others. We might expect images of Tawerit and other gods to be rare, but they're not. Tawerit and her colleague Bess show up a lot at the city of Amana. Perhaps the picture of Akhenaten's religion is more complicated than it first seems. So, T appeared in statue form as Tawerit the Great. She also used the crowns of Hathor in her artistic imagery. All of which suggests that this queen emphasised the maternal goddess concept, and she continued to use it long after her royal husband died. If anything, evidence from her later years suggests that T continued to use such imagery more and more strongly. Even at Amana, bastion of Aten worship, T appeared in her full splendour as Hathor incarnate. T was an important woman, and she continued to fill a vital role in the pageantry of royal life. For a full decade of the king's early reign, Queen T remained in the background, perhaps living quietly with her daughter Baket Aten. Now, with her son well established on his throne and pursuing his ideas, Queen T came to visit him at his new city. So it was that T visited Aket Aten, Amana, and took up residence in the halls of power once again. We have so much artistic material relating to T, and so many references in texts, that it's easy to assume she was a uniquely powerful queen, with more evidence than almost anyone before her on par with Hatshepsut, T seems to leave a material record far exceeding that of a normal Egyptian lady. Which begs the question, was T exceptionally powerful and prestigious, or is she just exceptionally well preserved? On the one hand, Queen T is unusually visible, thanks to her husband's long reign and the huge number of monuments, records, and artifacts that survive. On the other hand, Amunhotep III did go further than his predecessors in terms of building temples all over the place, and then within those temples, showcasing himself and his queen, T, as parallel and equally majestic figures. So, T's surviving record is unusually well preserved compared to earlier queens, and that makes her seem more impressive by comparison. But, she certainly participated in a royal project that was, in some ways, head and shoulders above those of recent predecessors. So although the evidence is definitely more abundant, the sheer fact that it is more abundant gives us a clue to the unusually splendid and impressive ideas of her time. T's story does not end here. She would live on for at least another year or two, enjoying the comforts of her family's palaces at Arket Aten. We will see her again before she takes her journey to the west. For now, 
it's enough to know that she was spending her remaining years among family. With her youngest daughter at her side, and her son reigning in splendour, T could relax, dressing gown fully open, to enjoy the comforts of royal retirement. With elaborate crowns on head, and a long reputation of divine association, T was, for her servants, her subjects, and her family, a living image of Hathor. Next time on the History of Egypt podcast, Akhenaten's reign grows ever more splendid. In the same year that his mother came to visit, the pharaoh of Egypt commissioned a grand celebration. This was no said festival, not even an anniversary. It was a convocation in which Egypt played host to the representatives of foreign kingdoms. From the south, the west, the north, and the east, ambassadors came bearing tribute for the great pharaoh. It was time for Akhenaten to celebrate his own imperial majesty, an event that was recorded in great and beautiful detail. Join me soon for episode 121 on the History of Egypt podcast. See you soon. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.